Hi, thanks for listening to Doth Protest Too Much, a podcast on Reformation theology and history. This is Reverend Andrew or Father Drew. I seem to go by a few names these days, depending on where I'm at. Uh, Today, joining James and I is Todd Brewer, uh, editor, author, and contributor Mockingbird. We have had folks from Mockingbird on in the past, notably Dave Zoll recently, and just as notable Ben Madison way back on one of our earliest episodes. Todd is the managing editor of Mockingbird since 2020 and also holds a PhD in New Testament from Durham University. So Todd, we look forward to asking you a bit about both your studies, your scholarly work and your work with Mockingbird. And thank you for being here. Sure, thanks for having me. So Todd, many who know of you or or who have come across your work uh, like myself, for instance, it's it's mainly um, been through like articles you've written for Mockingbird, as well as maybe of listening to you via one of Mockingbird's podcasts like Talking Bird. Um, and like I said, for our listeners, Mockingbird has gotten some attention from our podcast and listeners could always go to the episodes with Dave and Ben to hear about it. The episode with Dave Zoll gave us a good history of how the ministry came together about 15 years ago. And for our listeners, that's the episode known as no, uh, Known and Loved is the name of it. But seeing it as it is a ministry that involves several people, um, I'd like to hear your take. And what I mean by that is like, what, why do you think why do you think Mockingbird ministry is important? Do you see it as especially relevant, particularly for today? Yeah, I think Mockingbird, our, the, the sort of goal of what we do with everything is to proclaim the gospel. Um, and however we shape or form we find it, um, whether that's through um, insights that we find with psychology or social science that tells us something about what it means to be human and then how the gospel corresponds to that or um, any number, whether it's pop culture and um, something someone has written that is particularly profound and moving. Um, but the kind of flip side of that, I think, in terms of why Mockingbird is important, I mean, I think, A, because the gospel is important, but also the other thing is that I think Mockingbird occupies a really interesting and unique space within the kind of web and cybersphere because there aren't many places left that are, um, we'll say, politically diverse or places where there isn't any politics at all, for the most part. Um, I think politics and um, and a lot of that kind of discourse can consume so many Christian websites and Christian publications. Um, I'm not going to name names, but uh, it's something we consciously try to avoid, not for lack of conviction, but because we care about something that transcends uh, the things that divide us, Mm -hmm. uh, politically at least. Yeah. And I remember it it kind of brings me back to the discussion James and Steve and I had with Dave Zoll and um, how there has that value to Mockingbird. It, it transcends those, um, so many of the common things we, we get in our discourse that uh, really kind of just put us into boxes and all that. And in, in, in that, it's because part of it, it, it offends. I think, James, you brought this out. 
that because the gospel offends people in their worldly allegiances, be they political ideologies, um, Mockingbird, by holding to the gospel, does that. And of course, a reminder for our listeners of what the gospel is, because some a lot of people use the word gospel, and they may use it in different senses. And sometimes, unfortunately, it gets used in a sense where gospel actually it is actually referring to good news. And when I read like your work and others on Mockingbird, I am, I mean, on one end, reflect, refreshed and reminded uh, about what the good news is right and um i know you 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 spoke a little bit to this in your article comforting the comfortable i didn't mm-hmm. plan on immediately going into this i wanted to ask you stuff about your like nt studies which i definitely want to because i i think for so you put a lot out there people can definitely get it you know um can get a glimpse of like who you are through what you write but rarely does it ever you know uh the the it's not like you're writing uh, uh mono, monographs and stuff for for mockingbird on on your you know <laughs> your scholarly work <laughs> separate from that but but all that yeah. said um you did write an article comforting the comfortable and i liked it because so much um i think there's been a lot of misleading notions about what the preacher's task is to do and you've seen it over the past several decades and you've definitely seen it in like mainline protestant culture um and it some of it goes back to a misreading and i think probably an erroneous like misquotation of bart (laughs) where he says something along the lines of having you know the bible in one hand and like a newspaper article in the other or something like that Mm -hmm. and like what what a lot of people like basically took that as as well keep up with what's relevant because if you don't preach on the latest news article you know if you don't talk about the chinese spy balloon which for our listeners i didn't mention a thing about that this past sunday i didn't either that has nothing <laughs> because it has well nothing done. to do with it <laughs> but you know it's finding a current event because that's what's going to make you relevant and then through that current event try to somehow tie in like the scriptural message or something like that you know and i think you know, ultimately, I don't think you're, you're I think you're well in agreement on me that that's not what we do. And in comforting the comfortable, uh, you, you said Jesus, quote, Jesus was not a news reporter seeking to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. In his death, the divine attributes of wrath and mercy collide, forgiving both the crucified thief and the Roman centurion under the darkness of God's judgment so it seems we get a little bit in there about judgment but the article is titled comforting the comfortable and so is it i don't know i want to see where you go with it is it bad to to talk of god's judgment with which mainline churches do shy away from in a little bit in in many ways uh but also is it bad to to be comfortable which mainline churches also like to say is a bad thing. <laughs> Do you see where I'm going with this? <laughs> that's right. You want me? Uh, that's right. Mainline churches, uh, judgment is bad and being comfortable is bad. And I'm, uh, yeah, <clears throat> I am, uh, I'm not personally a fan of divine judgment, but I think it's real um, for that matter. Um, 
I think it's pretty manifold kind of uh, existence in, in life and sin uh, that in the world that we live in, uh, our, our actions have very real and tangible um, negative outcomes that exceed our ability to understand what uh, what the causation and consequences. Um, so yeah, I think um, there certainly is a place for uh, talking about judgment and um, sin and all, all kind of the law in that sense. Um, but I think the the, the law is is the um, is the upbeat that anticipates the downbeat of the gospel, right? So it's the it's the first word. It's not the final word. It's not even the primary word, um, right? So it is it, what. So you know, you talk about death in order to talk about resurrection. You talk about sin in order to talk about grace. Um, and I th I think the difficulty. So part of what the article is trying to to sort of accomplish is. Oftentimes, we as uh, theologians, biblical scholars, or preachers tend to have an idea of who needs which word, as if the law is a, something we can use and the gospel is something we can use, and these are just tools in the preacher's toolkit. Um, but in, re in reality, um, we're really bad at sort of figuring out who needs what um, and, and trying to um, be the sort of diagnostic people on the front end. Um, I think it's it, far better to proclaim the gospel writ large um, and then um, like Jesus did, <laughs> like Paul did, and then have, um, and if that's disquieting to people, then it's disquieting because of a rejection of mercy, but not because it's a, a rejection of whatever it is you think is their problem, right? Um, because what I think someone else's problem is usually isn't correct. And uh, if you try to do that diagnostic work on the front end and thereby, and in doing so, withhold the, a comforting word of grace of, of the gospel, then you're you're gonna lose nine times out of ten. Yeah, I think I think you're absolutely right. <clears throat> um, I think that one one of the natural tendencies that clergy have is to treat the sermon like, and I've said this a number of times on here, but to treat the sermon like. Um, giving the people the homework assignment for the week. Um, and it often ends up being your salvation becomes tacitly dependent upon your observance of the law, that if you do this particular thing, then God is going to show you mercy. And it's absolutely backwards. Um, and so I've come to a place where, as I said um near the beginning of my time on this podcast with Drew and, and Stephen and Charlie um, was I don't give people homework and I always end on the gospel, the good news. Um, that being said, I do think it's very important that everyone hears the, the, the word of the law 
Um, because even though for a lot of people, it is, it is implicit, like we're constantly assailed against by the law. We're constantly shown our sinfulness and brokenness, but there's something that's cathartic. I think even in the priest mentioning it and saying like yesterday in uh, the gospel lesson for uh, the fifth Sunday after the epiphany, um, unless you have a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And I said from the pulpit, if we read that at face value, we're all in big trouble. And like, if there's no other word that follows that, if the cross doesn't follow that, then we're, we're all in desperate trouble. Um, but I think that this gets back to the, the, the concern that you're mentioning, Todd, gets back to the conflation of law and gospel, that people think that the good news is what I do to help God's kingdom come. But that that is necessarily not good news. If it's an imperative, it's not going to be good news. Your parents, when you were a kid, as I've said before, don't they didn't say to you, good news, you need to go clean up your room. They said, you know, if 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 it were to be the case that uh, that something like this happened, they would say, good news, I cleaned your room for you. That's that's mm -hmm. the way it works. So, yeah, I'm, I'm just I'm thinking through what you're saying and, and resonating with what you're saying. I appreciate it. Yeah. And, and the other thing I'll add, um, you know, you talked about, you mentioned the, the Bart quote uh, about preaching with uh, the newspaper in one hand and the Bible in the other. Um, is I often think, that I'm actually not a fan of that quote. Um, not because I don't think preaching has any kind of bearing on current events, but I, I tend to think that when we're, when we do such a thing, what we're doing is we're, is we're taking the, the, the kind of, um, the whatever kind of dominant political discourse that exists at the time, where we take that as the thing that is the setup, or or it kind of infuses into our preaching language, right? You sort yep. of take an issue on the terms as it, as it's been handed to you, and you end up sullying um, scripture by extension, right? Um, and you know, uh, one of the things, I guess it feels forever ago. One of the things I, I wrote kind of early on when I started working for Mockingbird was an article called um, uh, Preaching in, in Turbulent Times, Preaching Politically in Turbulent Times. And it was on the political witness of Rudolf Bultmann, mm -hmm. who's, a, who's a, I'm a big fan of actually. And what it's interesting because Bultmann, by N.T. Wright and others is sort of taken to task for never being explicit politically during his time in the, during the Third Reich in the um, 1930s. And the trouble is, is that it, actually, if you look at what he what he said, he never mentions the Führer by, by name uh, for many reasons. But if you're but if you actually see what he said, he was incredibly revolutionary. He's actually getting at the heart of the ideology of the Third Reich rather than naming the Third Reich uh, explicitly, because he believed that that was far more effective to, so rather than talking about, you know, Republican politics or democratic politics, what Boltman would say is, you go to what lies beneath that and the philosophy underneath it. The idea that, um, for, as a sort of, for instance, um, 
you know, the idea that, that we shouldn't live life with any, without any suffering, right? Mm -hmm. that, that exists beneath rights discourse, for mm -hmm. example. Um, and if you, if you go at, operate at that level, then you can sort of meet the people where, the, where they actually live without putting up their defenses or without sullying what you're trying to, uh, the gospel with, by way of political uh, discourse and, um, and verbiage and terms and all those sorts of things. Right. Um, so it's always to find something that, trans that exists outside of the terms of uh, the, the political terms that have been handed us which is really hard work, but uh, on the front end by a preacher, but it's also quite natural if you're inhabiting and living the world of scripture. I think, I think the other thing is that when we are having conversations today and when Mockingbird does things like Mockingbird does, it's sort of going against the grain of society because it seems to me to be the case that the vast majority of conversations that are had about religious topics are actually informed by secular ideologies, as opposed to the secular ideologies being informed by a religious identity. At least that's the way I'm sort of reading it, so that you get people who have really not got strong Christian convictions, ultimately, but if it comes down to who they're voting for they are the most evangelical politicians possible because they want you to know the good news of x y and z person um sure would you would you what would you say to that yeah i think this is where um the foreignness of scripture is really helpful mm -hmm. um that that it's it's a it's something that exists outside of our current time um separated by a way of 2000 years and that natural distance actually provides a, its own kind of corrective voice mm -hmm. um which isn't to say that we that you know we're supposed to reproduce first century uh life on a one-to-one -one, you know i'm not a mennonite or something like that um <laughs> but rather you know when we ask and when we ask scripture contemporary questions, we get answers that we that are distinctly not contemporary. Mm -hmm. And it's that difference which opens up the chance to hear something different and new that we wouldn't otherwise expect or desire, potentially. Right. Um, that is nevertheless um, uh, can be comforting and um, and desirous. Right. You know, and this is makes, you know, kind of what I conclude from um, and I, what I gather from from this is that because the gospel, it has a timeless value because it literally is the timeless truth not conditioned by space or time, like so many of the things we in our creatureliness get wrapped up into. Um, that uh, we can bring the gospel, like you said, something from outside of us, something from outside of whatever is contemporary, which is ultimately temporary. And it can speak its timeless truth too. Um, when you're mentioning kind of how Boltman did that 
um, not because uh, he directly addressed contemporary politics in his sermonizing or whatever, and not because he he doesn't explicitly address it. That's not what is guiding him in his sermon writing. Uh, but the tr the truth that is brought through the gospel comes to bear on on that. Um, that reminded me of you wrote another thing for article for uh, an art another article for Mockingbird about uh, how Paul kind of did this in his own day, right? Um, your mm. article titled "How Revolutionary Was Paul." Um, you write, "quote For his time, Paul was indeed a revolutionary." He just wasn't the kind of revolutionary who took up arms or spoke on behalf of the people. Paul was radical because he recognized that the death and resurrection of Jesus was the hinge upon which all of human history turned, the pebble thrown into the ocean of time that created a tsunami, uh, unquote. And this may be a good segue into kind of our, maybe kind of your the, the discussion of things, currents you find in the New Testament field and, you know, subfields within. Um, what, well, basically, what is the, the argument that Paul is a revolutionary, at least in our, in our uh, typical, like, image of what a revolutionary is, like a, like a Vladimir Lenin or something like that? I mean, how, mm -hmm. what, are there, there are trends that say this about, I mean, Jesus for one, but they also say that about Paul. What, why do they say this about Paul? Well, they say thing, they say that about Paul for uh, a number of reasons. Um, the first of which is is responding to what they believe to be a kind of urgent political need today and a desire for Paul to make comment on it. Um, if, if I were to put it crassly, uh, I would say that the, the political sort of Paul as anti-imperial writer, uh, the subgroup of it that happened in the big Bible conference of society of biblical literature, um, that subgroup, the anti-imperial Paul readings group, always has a bump in attendance whenever Republicans are in office. Mm -hmm. um, and it's not accidental. I mean, it, it came to, uh, you know, really reached its peak during the Bush years and then dropped almost immediately during the Obama years. Um, and so, so that's one reason why sort of people see in Paul a kind of revolutionary bit. Um, the other, I mean, is related, which is that you can't see any other significant social significance for Christianity and the gospel beyond uh, the political possibilities presented to us. But I think that the third is that um, the way anti-imperial readings of Paul function is they take as a given that Paul must have made comment on Caesar. Paul didn't participate in the imperial cult. Christians didn't. So what does that mean? Why would that be? And then can we find reasons for that in Paul's letters? And so, so looking to Paul's letters, what they then go and say is, is they look for a hidden transcript in Paul. Where, and what I mean by that is every time... Paul says, Jesus is Lord, there's an implication uh, present that parentheses, Caesar is not. 
And, and this argument has taken a, a number of permutations over the years. One was to say that Paul's letters were searched. And so he couldn't say what he had to, what he really thought because his letters were searched. Um, we don't really have much evidence for uh, kind of widespread uh, KGB searching of communications between. Yeah. That um, sounds like an argument from silence. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's the thing is it's all, it, uh, quite a bit of it is an argument of, of from silence. There's, there's maybe one place in in uh, in First Thessalonians and a couple places in in Corinthians where what Paul says could have a kind of political implications, but they're all largely an argument from silence. Um, and so, how do you so so then my kind of position is um, like, well, what does Paul actually say, and how does he how does he view human history? Does he see human history as coming to its completion with the fall of Rome? Or would he, is that even a category that he would envision? Um, and, and that in many ways was the genesis of the article itself, which is seeing a disconnect between the, um, between the anti-imperial Roman uh, kind of readers of Paul who want Paul to be a revolutionary and then the lack of pragmatic steps to actually accomplish anything. So if Paul was actually as revolutionary as they, as revolutionary as they say, Where's the evidence? Does do do they want a, a different senator to be Caesar? Do they want outright revolt and armed violence? Um, so th there's very little evidence of any kind of pragmatic uh, revolutionary overtones um, in any of Paul's letters. I think because he sees something that has uh, the event of Jesus' death and resurrection as happening within time to change all of time, uh, irrespective of whoever sits on whatever throne. Um, and that, that irrespective idea is, is itself revolutionary to us because, we, because we're so um, bl uh, blinded by what we think to be possible. And Paul was lived within the impossible. You know, that reminded me um, when you made that comment about or in it, the, the part of the article I just quoted where the reason why precisely Paul is radical is he's radical in this sense. You know, the death and resurrection of Jesus was the hinge upon which all of history was turned, um, of which it turns. It reminded me a lot of what Leander Keck wrote in, I think it was the Proclamation Commentary series. Still one of my favorite uh Bible commentaries ever was his Leander Keck's Paul and his letters. Um, and he said something very similar. Um, he, he was addressing kind of, uh, I guess, scholars who are critical of Paul at the time who, who, who considered Paul to have a very uh, conservative ethic or something like that. And uh, not, uh, not a revolutionary or something like that. And Leander said something very similar. He said, well, he's revolutionary in the sense that um, it is because the, he's living in in with the eschaton uh right around the corner uh in effect um and so the 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 things he encourages his congregations to do the way they ought to to live uh you know, how, how he addresses cultural things how they are to live within the world it's within clear mind that jesus is coming back soon um and so in you know that sense he is 
very radical because 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 the culture around him is not saying that it is not uh first off uh giving this title of lordship and messiah to this man jesus who who in the eyes of the world was a failed you know person who died on a cross uh he precisely this is what made uh paul radical so i, mean, I just couldn't help but see the parallel there um I don't, do you know leander keck do you, i mean do you know that I, I know you of course you do you know all the new testament stuff you you have a phd in it but i don't know if you if you've kind of liked some of his work i just kind of saw some similarities there yeah um keck is a um i want to say he was a he was a student of ernest Casemont, actually um i know he, he I think devoted right. one of his books to him uh, and Kazemon, in many senses, is one of the fountainheads to this view of, of it's often caricatured or sort of categorized as, as the apocalyptic Paul. Um, but yeah, I, I like Leander Keck's work. The, um, you know, it's interesting that you're talking about the, the second coming as, as a sort of around the corner. And, you know, 2000 years later, we can often think, um, how well what a silly way of thinking right right but what, what we miss it in the what we miss in that and what we what would sort of kind of what we dismiss far too easily is that what's driving paul isn't a chronolo chronological view of time that is that sees tomorrow as completely predicated upon uh what happened today right um, because the eschaton says that there's something that will come outside of time into our time and changing our time irrevocably. Um, and, and that there's something beyond what we think is possible in the day-to-day, -day, given our own constraints of, um, of time and history and sin and all of those sorts of things. I mean, so that's what it means for, for Paul to have an eschatological expectancy. It's that he actually thinks that, that life is not bound by a pattern of causation and uh, that today leads into tomorrow, it leads into the next day. So it's, a, it's a way of talking about a God who's living and acting active in a way that beyond, um, beyond causation. Right, right. Um, so, uh, and I think I misspoke earlier because I, I made it seem as if you keep your uh, New Testament studies life and your Mockingbird contributor life totally separate from each other. And that's not the case really at all. Um, you've uh, you've kept up with the field and time to time we will see something published on Mockingbird, kind of a, an assessment or reflective piece on some scholarship you've come across and perhaps, you know, what the theological implications of it are. I, I was really interested in your last kind of report on that, you, your thoughts you had on the last uh, society, SBL, Society of Biblical Literature, that's what the acronym stands for, for our, our listeners. I'm actually, a, mm -hmm. I've been meaning to go to one. I'm a member of AAR, even though I think I would enjoy an SBL conference a lot more. <laughs> but um, <laughs> I was curious about some of the things you, you mentioned uh, kind of in the last uh, conference you went to, you mentioned a recent trend that you find good and timely uh, is the growing intertextual approach. Uh, can you tell us a bit about that? Like anything and tell us a bit about it and then like anything noticeable from either that conference or something you've come across in recent years. That's a good example of that approach. Sure. Um, 
So a really good example of this that, that will sort of make good sense to um, listeners, uh, a long held dogma that is largely going away um, is a view of an isolated Johannine community, for example. Um, so, when, so when you say intertextuality, um, it, it, it's, you know, the ways in which texts in the New Testament and beyond can comparatively relate to one another, right? So you're you're not simply um, studying one text and delving into it in isolation from everything else, but um, because in part because what the what's actually sort of happening in early Christianity is a very kind of interactive diversity, to use a phrase from Larry uh, Larry Hurtado, which is the Johannine community was not off on, on their own kind of islands. Atmos or whatever, um, isolated from the rest of Christianity. Um, and for the for our listeners, for the Johannine community, that's the community from which scholarship says products of it are the Gospel of John, letters of John. Right. So, so yeah, that's right. So Ephesus, um, John as as the elder of the church, and that community that has no interaction whatsoever with Paul, and in particular, um, Mark and Matthew and Luke. Right. Uh, it's a way of accounting for the difference between the the Gospel of John and the Gospel of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which is to say that John has his own material, he's on his own, he's writing his own Gospel, irrespective and without any knowledge of Matthew, Mark, or Luke. And I think the sort of position, what scholars are now sort of seeing is that, yes, there isn't the same kind of verbatim quotation between John and, and Mark that we get between Mark and Matthew. But nevertheless, it does seem to be the case that John is aware of Mark, certainly uh, has modeled some scenes on the basis of Mark. So, so that's one example. The other is, is a way of seeing um, sort of comparative readings of New Testament texts within second and third century uh, texts. So uh, some of the work I've done um, this is this is my PhD thesis was comparing the Synoptic Gospels with the Gospel of Thomas, uh, comparing them on their sort of interpretive approaches to parables, in uh, in particular, and the Jesus tradition in, uh, more broadly. So, um, yeah. So I had you know when I was writing it eight years ago, I had to do a, quite a bit of work on the front end to justify why I should compare these texts. But I think if I were to write it now, I wouldn't have to spend 10,000 words explaining why these texts needed to be compared with one another. They would just, they, they it would be taken, okay, yes, these are both gospels, it makes sense. Um, yeah, so that's part of what I, I sort of see is going on is an, an interest in comparing texts that wouldn't otherwise have been compared with one another. So if I, if I heard you correctly, you're saying that people would, would have balked at the idea of comparing texts like the Gospel of Thomas with the Synoptics eight years ago, but today they wouldn't? So, so they would have need, there would have needed to have been some kind of tangible reason for, for the comparison. In other words, 
usually by way of genetic dependency or independence, hmm. right? Um, and that was the discussion of the, of the Gospel of Thomas for decades. Right. Is Thomas dependent upon the Synoptic Gospels? Is Thomas independent or um, independent from it? Um, right. And that would form the basis of however you analyze them, um, rather than taking them uh, as 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 givens and seeing what happens whenever you just compare them at face value, rather than getting into the weeds of which one is came first. Right, um, right. I, I see what you're saying. Yeah, because I think I think um, with what I know of that whole debate, the Jesus seminar kind of muddied the waters with that a bit and uh, attempted to put it on an equal playing field, put Thomas on an equal playing field with the synoptics um, and perhaps even above the synoptics, um, but based on spurious evidence, I would say. Yeah. I mean, from a rhetorical standpoint, they had a, um, there's a whole book, there's a book titled the fifth gospel, which is its own kind of, uh, you know, there's four, uh, we have a fifth gospel, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so that was certainly part of it. Um, the other, yeah, has to do with how they believe Thomas goes back to uh, a kind of parallel to Q between um, in the, between the third, um, the thirties and the fifth, in the fifties as our earliest evidence of, of Christianity. Um, I mean, it's, spurious and foolhardy but you know that that's what you get when you make claim upon claim upon claim upon claim and by the end you're, you're left with something that's maybe five percent possible right it, it reminded me uh when you were talking about that it reminded me of the one of the recent pictures that's gone around on social media of the supposed english translation of the aramaic lord's prayer i don't know if you've seen that <laughs> how absolutely horrible it is but it's like trying to rob jesus of any jewishness whatsoever which is exactly what i feel like thomas tries to do thomas is inherently gnostic and does not uh, i think do justice to the old testament um yeah yeah i i avoid the gnostic label when it comes to thomas for a variety of reasons but it is um vigorously anti-jewish for sure okay um yeah the um (laughs) <laughs> yeah uh oh yes Th- Th- thomas is an interesting we don't need to talk about thomas at all but it, uh, i find it to be a fascinating that could one. turn into a whole other episode but yeah it really it really could uh, i don't know much about it other than the it's a sayings gospel some date it very early and and i think like you mentioned jesus seminar i feel like i feel like crossing was the one who yeah, who who really he was a big fanboy or is a big fanboy of Thomas, um, but mm-hmm. so but I guess getting back to the the concept of intertextuality, like the big question is like especially for the average layman on the streets, like so what like, and maybe the scholars say that too because if if um, you're not if we're not going to, if we're going to bracket off or put aside uh, the 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 issue of genetic relation right uh which has its own importance right we want to see we want to see how the thought developed where did this thing that was written how is it dependent on something else right having that established relationship can speak a lot to our understanding perhaps of what this thing comes from what it's addressing 
why it's being written. Uh, but it seems like the intertextual approach likes to, it can take things disconnected or seemingly disconnected, put them in dialogue with each other. But what's the so what of that? I mean, I can, I can, I can take a guess. My guess would be that because, you know, because obviously, especially if you're looking at it from a theology standpoint, which, uh, the message always transcends how exactly it got there, you know, um, what can, you know, and, and just maybe just practically speaking, what we can learn from uh, other voices. And I don't know, from an anthropological standpoint, I guess, like, how does that speak to just the, the human uh, quest for truth overall, right, by putting all these different things in dialogue with each other is that kind of like am i kind of hitting the mark a little bit there but why the why the intertextual approach is what it is or why we well, have... a, a, a fantastic example of an intertextual approach um from within the last five or six years would be john barclay's paul Nagant, right it's a, a revolutionary book i didn't Most read it but i i read the abridged version the paul and the what is the it? power of grace power yeah. of grace awesome that's an awesome book yeah um so what what um what barclay does is one of the end the end point the so what of that book is it overturns a consensus 40 years in the making plus 45 years at this point from ep sanders the idea that uh judaism was a covenantal nomist religion and which is that you're in by grace and you're in, and you stay in by works. And that this was across the board, whatever, what all sort of good um, Jewish people thought. Um, and then, uh, so, and what John does that in part by studying lots of texts. But what emerges though, is what's, what makes Paul distinctive and unique, what makes Paul interesting in comparison to all of these other texts. So like Wisdom of Solomon, for example, is a text that we do see some dependence perhaps between Paul and Wisdom of Solomon and Romans one in particular. Um, uh, Jonathan Lionball wrote a whole book about this, right? Um, but if you're, if you're just doing genetics, you're only interested in where did uh, where did Paul get his argument from or not get his argument from. But if you're doing an intertextual comparative study, then you're able to see the differences between, for example, how Wisdom of Solomon understands uh, Exodus as the foundational event of Israel's history, wh wherein the righteous Jewish people go through the Red Sea and the unrighteous uh, Egyptians go through the same sea and are destroyed. Um, and uh, wherein God's mercy is given to, um, it is unmerited, but it's given to those who are fitting recipients of it, right? So, but you compare that to Paul, you know, Paul doesn't comment on, on the Exodus ever i think and um and but nevertheless paul wouldn't see the same event in the same terms because god justifies the ungodly right the, so you're not looking for uh there is no dependence 
on that subject matter, but, but placing them in, con in context and conversation with one another, you're able to create a conversation which, uh, in which the, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts, where you can see something, something in Paul that you may not have other, otherwise seen because you're either A, familiar with it, or B, assuming something which may not necessarily be true. So um, another good example is comes from my PhD supervisor uh, called Paul and the Hermeneutics of Faith, where he compares readings of uh, the Abraham Genesis narrative with Paul's own reading. And it's through that that he notices it, that you're able to see and recognize that the, the, law, the giving of the law at a specific moment in time was a, a fairly unique, um, not exclusively so, but a fairly unique way of reading Genesis. Because other uh, readers like Philo, for example, universalized the law in such a way that uh, the law, that the characters prior to its the, the giving of the law are judged in accordance with the law. So you have uh, uh, Abraham, who is a law-abiding Jew, who is a monotheist before monotheism, all of those sorts of things, as a way of denoting why Abraham was chosen. Um, so, so there's this kind of, in, you, you construct the inter, intertextual conversation and it highlights um, things that you may not have otherwise noticed. Okay, yeah. I will say one thing. So Paul does actually mention the Exodus in First Corinthians ten. Oh right, right. So, but but he does it in the way that you're talking about, or at least what I'm garnering from what you're saying, which is that he's understanding it not as a sort of covenantal nomism, but as a type and shadow of baptism, crossing mm -hmm. through the sea, drinking from the spiritual rock who was Christ, but still they died. Right, right. Which they they enter the Red Sea as Egyptians and they come out as israelites right it's an external an external shift like it's something yeah. that's given to them it's it's a matter for grace yeah yeah i'm gonna say that next i have a baptism on sunday and i'm gonna say you are egyptian then after i dip the baby i'm gonna say you are now an israelite kidding I'll, I'll probably be brought up on title title whatever number that is yeah, <laughs> right. don't don't mess with the baptismal formula. Yeah, I will. Just don't say we <laughs> baptize you in Egyptian, and that won't be an issue, right? Because that was the big thing. Oh yeah, that was that that Catholic guy who got right. That was a little um, that was a little heavy handed for me. I don't know what y'all think, but I, I thought it was a bit it was a little legalistic. It was a little legalistic. Yeah, his punishment for that. I'll put an article in the. I don't want to get into that, but I'll put a show note. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just full of rabbit holes today, I guess. I'm gleefully yeah. unaware. Uh, oh, whatever well, controversy you're discussing. Well, the, the Roman Catholic Church, yeah, castigated one of their priests who had baptized children by saying, "We baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit," because he didn't use the strict formula of "I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit." So all the people he had baptized had to be what they said was they had to be baptized, not rebaptized, not conditionally baptized but actually baptized because they were never baptized in the first place which also then had implications for their marriages and for raising their children and all of that because of how strict rome is with all such things 
Well, and I'm sure many in the Roman, many theologians in the Roman church were divided on that. They're probably like, what is all the, like, that's, you know, but anyways, you know. Yeah. Um, so, uh, on maybe a note to kind of, well, we'll be wrapping up soon, but I, while we're on the intertextual thing, it, um, you did mention also in your SBL visit uh, that the wider is as good as, as good of stuff as you saw coming out of it. Uh, you, I found this interesting. You mentioned this wider intertextual field, intertextual field does not, however, extend to Martin Luther. I counted precisely six papers engaging with the Wittenberg doctor being Martin Luther. So you, you probably knew that we were going to bring up Luther at some point on this podcast. It's kind of inevitable. Uh, but I found that interesting. And I'm curious, I, I assume you think it is important for biblical scholars to engage with the thought of Luther why is that? Um, <laughs> my favorite thing to say uh, about Luther, um, which is, is something I did not come up with, but I, I won't say who, is um, you learn more, more from Luther when he's wrong than from Calvin when he's right. Mm-hmm. Um, which is say Luther was a was a genius, right? Um, his he 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 knows um, his way of viewing scripture, his way of um, viewing uh, God and what what is and is not Christianity. I think is um, is is brilliant, and um, and you know. So I think there's lots of reasons for people to read Luther, uh, <laughs> but. It is true that scholarship, uh, at least SBL this year, AAR this year, didn't have much to say about Luther. Um, Maybe it was because was the uh, the 500th anniversary of the Reformation happened, and you know five years ago, and everyone wrote their papers then, and now they're done. But right, um, not the the current trend anymore. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Well, I think. um, Yeah. I was, so I think I, I have a few thoughts on this. I think, you know, I was once in a conversation uh, and I've mentioned this on the podcast before, but I was once, once in conversation with a person who's a new Testament scholar uh, and he, uh, and I, I was, we were talking about kind of the new perspective stuff. And this person is definitely of a post new perspective on Paul um, and this is not Stephen Chester, by the way, which we did an episode on this very topic with for our listeners a few episodes back. Look for that one. But um, this is a separate, uh, s- separate incident. But uh, I was, and this guy's you know, of kind of the post new perspective. He said, "Well, there's good things to take from the new perspective, but ultimately, I think they're, 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 they have some fundamental flaws." And and you know, I, but I'll take what's good from them. But I'm not in their camp or something. Basically, if I could. You know, I'm not going to mention their name anyway, so I don't, but I think sure. I'm, I'm accurately placing them. Um, but I, and I've, but I've noticed like, um, and when we had that conversation, I told him, he was like, you know, my issue with like the people, like the new perspective on Paul school is that, um, you know, they, uh, they, it's not like they don't know Paul and the New Testament. Paul oh, they don't. Paul. No, no, they don't. They're like, experts on that i mean like there's some of the best scholars in the field on that but 
they don't get the reformers. I honestly right, don't think right. James Dunn and Tom Wright really, um, you know, really have read any Luther. Um, and I've even seen that. And we mentioned Barclay earlier, who I think is so much of a corrective to them. But I think even Barclay kind of still has some of the, and the really old criticisms of like, of Luther. Um, and I think he said something. Um, he said in his book, this is the abridged version, the Paul and the, not the Power, Gift, of, grace. Power of Grace. He mm-hmm. says kind of, um, in, in, he says this, and maybe this is more of his critique of Lutheranism, to be fair, but he says, quote, in the Lutheran tradition, the law gospel antithesis has given rise to anxiety around the language of obligation, which has made it difficult to account for Paul's sense that believers are under grace. Our own reading of Paul has attempted to repair this problem by insisting that divine grace given without regard to pre-existing worth indeed, where there is none at all, is designed to be transformative, reconstituting human agents whose newness of life has a necessarily different set of orientations, allegiances, and obligations, unquote. I highlighted that quote in my ebook, and I put this note, Luther would agree, dot, dot, dot. <laughs> so, that was his treatise, The Freedom of a Christian. Literally, it's like, have, um, did Barclay even read that, that, treatise yeah <laughs> has even read that at least that work of luther you know so i feel like luther's very um perhaps maybe what you noticed todd i don't know i'm speaking from no expertise at all because i don't go to these things it seems like there's just a lot of well i i think <laughs> yeah i think when it comes to barclay um you he's very specific there he says within the lutheran tradition right like, maybe to be so he's very... spread i was being unfair to him He's very cognizant that he's not, um, Barclay is a very careful scholar. Uh, he's very cognizant to not indict Luther specifically on that ground, because in many ways, you know, Paul and the, um, Paul and the gift or Paul and the power of grace, um, by his own admission, um, could be, could be distilled to Luther's Heidelberg disputation. The love of God does not find, but creates that which is pleasing to it. Mm-hmm. exactly the thesis statement of those books uh on the you know on the lips of luther so that i mean so that's part of it um the uh, but to the broader point about readers of luther and the and new testament new testament scholarship yeah there's a lot of really bad readings of luther um was it um richard hayes wrote his phd thesis on the pistis christu right uh, the faith of jesus in his translation um and it you know he published this book it, it ignited a whole tradition and he and the the basis of which was basically this you know luther gets it wrong it's not faith in christ but the faithfulness of christ and um jonathan limbaugh uh wrote a, a kind of a, a little bit of a rebuke of an article basically saying that there's nothing um that the faith in Christ is nothing but the presence of Christ himself, which is to say Richard Hayes's kind of contrast between Christological and anthropological readings is just a, is just a straw man misreading of, of Luther because it's hard to get more Christological than the presence of Christ himself. Um, 
So, I mean, and that's just rife within, within New, New Testament scholarship. Part of it is the limitation of expertise, you know, if, if, if we're going to be fair. But part of it is, and part of it is that Luther wrote a whole lot. Right. Uh, he wrote, right? And it's not neatly organized like church dogmatics. Um, they're still translating, uh, you know, the Weimar Alskaba into English, etc. So, so there's tangible reasons, but part of it is, if you, like, it's not that hard. <laughs> like it should well, be easier. <laughs> well, and I did not know that whole that whole bit. I mean, and I love Richard Hayes. He's one of my favorite Bible scholars. Um, but uh, his uh, book, the 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 Gospels use the Old Testament, is a phenomenal book. Um, yeah, his Echoes of Scripture is is Echoes um, of Scripture. Yeah. To talk about another someone who's who's doing intertextual readings, right? Um, his echoes of scripture is, um, in my estimation, is is a, a brilliant, fun read. Sometimes he's over interpreting, but nevertheless, it's uh, it's in, it's ingenious and creative, right? Yeah, yeah, and um, I mean, it it doesn't break my heart that he said that about Luke. I mean. I'm going to believe in the same grace Luther believed in that he believed in for himself. And then I, I have to, you know, I have to extend that to some others. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, the issue, I mean, are we ever going to get it hit? all right? You know, we're never going to get it all right. None of us. No. Yeah. And, you know, and to Richard's point, you know, what he's really responding to is 1980s evangel. Uh, I and my faith alone, uh, self-sufficiency um, in American evangelicalism. Right. That's what he's really after. The idea that faith is my possession. It's a badge that I hold on to that I, uh, to prove my worth. Right. Uh, which just makes faith into a, a law. And right. so R Richard was, uh, sorry, I'm I say Richard like I, I know him personally. Um, <laughs> uh, Professor Hayes was, um, rightly sort of issuing a corrective um even though what he ends up doing with galatians is is uh or <laughs> <laughs> very diplomatic <laughs> the first word that came to my mind i thought don't say that <laughs> and, and i'm on record richard hayes is uh this podcast is in a way a fan of richard hayes yeah okay <laughs> james uh you were going to say something? Well, I was going to say so that, you know, we're talking about the, in academia, the treatment of Luther. And I think the, in, in parish ministry, where the rubber meets the road, a lot of folks um, disavow Luther, disavow the law and gospel distinction and things like that, because they know that Luther said some pretty nasty things about Jews at one point in his life. Mm. And it's the sort of Twitter mentality of anything that you've said at any point in your life is fair game to be dredged up and you are uh, easily to be um, disavowed and castigated for anything that you've said at any point ever. Um, and the whole of your person is subject to such scrutiny because of things that you've said. Um, and so... I think that uh, Luther often doesn't get a fair shake um, and Luther's ideas often don't get a fair shake because he did say some awful things. Right. Um, 
but but that doesn't mean that he was wrong about the gospel. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, if you want to cancel Luther, sure, just William Tyndale instead. If I'm being, <laughs> right. if I'm being cheeky, right? Because William right. Tyndale's Romans commentary was basically lifted from from uh, Luther's lectures. So right. just read William Tyndale; it'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, uh, and they had some. They had some interesting Tyndale and Luther. That's an interesting early uh, uh, Anglo-Lutheran kind of uh, dialogue that went on in, in the King's Bible, and to some extent, King James kind of, you know, have some are kind of indebted to that cross influence, I guess. Um, uh, yeah. com complete side note, of course, but um, you know. Oh, oh, it's a, it's a, it's a fun rabbit trail. I mean, the early, um, the, the, the kind of early Reformation, um, you have, you know, you have all of these Englishmen going to Germany to study with Luther, right? Um, but one of the letters um, Tyndale wrote, um, to whom the name escapes me, but he basically says, um, the Lutherans are great, but don't talk about the Eucharist. With them. <laughs> right. <laughs> and that's basically what Anglicanism is so well right. <laughs> information is looking so right don't well, don't um, talk about the the eucharist because uh he just in, wrote against zwingli and we don't want to have the same thing happen to us right well guys uh this yeah. was a great pleasure i had a lot of fun with this um i uh, we we continue to appreciate uh your work with mockingbird Todd, um, I, I mean, really, like, it seems like every couple weeks, it's just, a, I'm just reading something so good out of there from you. And so, and I'll put links to the articles we mentioned from you, um, as well as some others that we didn't get to that I'd like readers to check out. Um, I regularly share them on my own social media, just because I'm, you know, they're so, and, and they're usually well received. I mean, I, you know, friends, parishioners, family members who, look at them who otherwise may not stumble across mockingbird because if you google mockingbird it, show, it goes it's a bunch of pages about a literal mockingbird not <laughs> not the ministry but um mockingbird strollers there's a strollers yes that too <laughs> thank you and um thank you james thank you all for your time god bless uh well uh for our listeners uh can't wait for you to tune in again <laughs>